All right, we are live, ladies and gentlemen. A new analysis by the Committee to Unleash Prosperity compares the worldviews of those representing the upper 1% of the population, that's in terms of income and education, with those of the average lowly United States citizens. Turns out there's a large divide in the thinking of these two groups of people. One side is doing financially better in the past few years. They think that there's too much freedom in America, and they believe in banning SUVs, gas stoves in order to save the planet. Can you guess which side I'm talking about? Hint. It won't surprise you at all. We're going to be talking about this and more on episode 433 of the In the Tank podcast. Booyah! Welcome to the In the Tank podcast. As always, I'm your host, Donald Kendall, operating in four hours of sleep, coming to you live. I've got a full crew here. I've got Jim Lakely, VP of the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today, good sir? Oh, and he's, he's muted. muted. He's Classic muted. Jim. Oh, there we go. I did it again. Yeah. What's up? Well, yeah, I've been watching the um, Michael Mann versus Mark Stein trial uh, all week. It is it is uh, my OJ trial. I just can't get enough of it. It's it's so interesting. And uh, and and we haven't even had the great Mark Stein get to cross examine Michael Mann yet, which is going to be must see TV. And we will be covering this on Climate Change Roundtable tomorrow on Heartland's main channel. So definitely tune in. I don't think anything for me is eclipsed the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, but uh, maybe I'll give it a go. We'll see. Also joining us, Chris Talgo. He is the editorial director here at the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today, good sir? Well, I'm doing good, but like I was telling you guys earlier, Donnie, the sun has not shown itself in the in the Chicago area for many, many days, and it's starting to just kind of wear on me a little bit. I think I, I think I have that. What is it called? Like sad, like seasonal affective mood disorder or whatever. Oh no, I, I gotta know. take some uh, vitamin D or something like that. Also joining us, Justin Haskins, director of the Socialism Research Center here at the Heartland Institute. Also sporting a beard. How are you? Sporting a beard, so I've never been better. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, last minute edition, I didn't think you were going to be joining us. You were going to be on the Ali Stucky show. I guess that recorded a little earlier than you expected. Yeah, or I just don't understand time zone changes. It's one or the other. But <laughs> I think we probably know which one that is. But uh, yeah, no, it was. It went. It went really well. We talked about the World Economic Forum. I don't know when it's coming out. Probably today or tomorrow. But it's going to be really exciting. I did want to just highlight that I had maybe the best moment that I've ever had in any television or radio appearance that I that I've done in my entire career. I've hundreds. I've done hundreds of TV and radio appearances been on primetime television, millions of people watching. This was the best, the most professional moment of my entire career happened uh -oh. in this interview itself. I'm mid-interview. I'm railing on the World Economic Forum, some kind of rant. I don't even remember what it was. It blacked out. Railing <laughs> on the World State. Economic Forum. <laughs> yeah. Just blacked out, railing on the World Economic Forum. I'm getting 
animated as I have a tendency to do. And as I'm moving my hands around, I accidentally knock my full cup of coffee off my desk. Loud noises banging all around. Coffee spills all over my desk, which is it's a standing desk. So it's right in front of me while I'm doing this interview. Pours all over my pants, just all <laughs> over my pants. My hands are soaking with coffee. And I look dead set into that camera and I continue with my rant as if nothing had happened. All right. And wow. nobody had any clue what was going on. Wow. It was, it really so, was like that's the height of professionals. And when you reach that, so to level, put it another you way, start spilling food on yourself and right. you can just keep going. Yeah, so to put it another way, you wet your pants and continue to do the interview. That's great. <laughs> That's one way of saying it. <laughs> that is one way of putting it, yes. <laughs> Fantastic. accurate, <laughs> but not the most flattering way of saying it. I wouldn't phrase it that way if it were up to me. I'm looking forward to the interview. Allie Stuckey, looking forward to it. Well, yeah, Justin, we... don't worry, because if the, if the World Economic Forum gets its way, we won't be drinking coffee anymore. Jim, I hope you're enjoying that, by the way. Yes. Oh, yes. Soon to be contraband. To, well, look at that. I mean, to, you should be drinking to, tea out of that mug over there. Look at look at yeah, that mug that he's got. Very they'll, they'll have to kill me. So it's <laughs> we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, we we are going to do a Davos watch at the end of this episode. Uh, but before we get into any of the topics, I need to uh, put that message out there to those audio only listeners that are probably catching the show on a Friday or later. First of all, leave a review for us on iTunes would be greatly appreciated. But you could also join the show, uh, watch the show live when we were live streaming it a day earlier on Thursdays at noon central time on Facebook or YouTube or X or Rumble. You could join the conversation, put your comments or questions in the chat. Maybe we'll show your comments on the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. You can also support the show by doing that live or uh, what is it called? Super chat. Super chat function is enabled. So that would guarantee that we read your comment or question on the screen. Um, or if you want to help out the show by not spending a dollar, but spending a couple of seconds hitting that subscribe button, if you haven't already sharing this content, liking the content, or just leaving a comment, all those things help break through those big tech algorithms to prevent content like this from being shown to more people. But, uh, before we get into our main topic, <clears throat> there was a thing that came across my desk that, uh, has to do with mail-in voting risks. So obviously we've been in the middle of the how legitimate was the 2020 election conversation since December because we released our poll we commissioned with Rasmussen showing somewhere between 20 and 30 percent of mail-in voters admitted to committing fraud when they voted. The origins of the poll rested on the, the speculation and concerns that mass mail-in balloting uh, that took place in 2020 may have facilitated widespread fraud. So our poll, at the very least, highlighted the potential and sparked a national conversation. Well, it turns out we weren't the only ones that had concerns over the potential of widespread fraud. So I'm uh, reading from an article from America First Legal that is titled Bombshell Documents. Uh, America First Legal Lawsuit Reveals CISA knew about mail-in voting risks in 2020 while censoring related narratives as disinformation. So the article says, Today, America First Legal released new documents from its lawsuit against the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. I don't know. how. What's the, what's the shorthand of that? CISA? CISA? Whatever. Uh, for records from its miss and dis and mail information team regarding the 2020 election. According to these 
newly released documents, CISA, an offshoot of the Department of Homeland Security, quote, new mail-in and absentee voting were less secure than in-person or verified voting. Uh, it confirmed that warnings uh, by former President Donald Trump and others of increased fraud and shared these concerns with mainstream media outlets during an unclassified media tour the Friday before the 2020 election. So not only that, but they also acknowledge, apparently these documents show that uh, that agency acknowledged that the claims of mail-in voting uh, would limit spread of COVID was bunk. The agency even created a graphic highlighting six different risks associated with mail-in balloting. This includes concerns over the necessary infrastructure to process the votes in a timely manner, the heightened risk of cyber attacks, and a couple of other issues. And what was the mass media's reaction when informed about this potential problem associated with mail-in voting? Ah, they alerted the public to these concerns, of course. Nah, I'm just kidding. They parroted the narrative that the unprecedented mail-in voting system would be the most secure and fair election ever. Don't pay attention to any of these concerns. But Chris, I mean, I thought anyone questioning any aspect of the, uh, of the election was tantamount to fascism. What's going on here? Well, it seems like they were covering it up all along. And, you know, I've been watching, you know, politics for two decades now, and I can't tell you the amount of times where something like this comes out three years, four years, five years after the fact. And then they, everyone just kind of goes, Oh, well, I guess, you know, I told you so, but it's, you know, too little too late. So the good thing about this is it came out, you know, in in, uh, you know, time for uh, changes to be made for the 2024 election. So that's what I'm really, you know, focused on is using this document to prove that mail in balloting at a mass level where you're just mailing out tens of millions of ballots based on outdated and inaccurate uh, voter rolls is a recipe for disaster. And that's what happened in 2020. And it would just be a sin if we were to repeat this again. So I am becoming, I think, a little more confident that the American people are uh, becoming aware of this. Um, and we've got, you know, 10 months or so to really, you know, get state legislatures to do what they got to do. So let's, you know, just do what we can to make sure that this uh, nightmare never happens again. Yeah, Jim, I mean, it seems obvious to me that anyone with a pulse should have concerns over I mean, just the general election in, in, in general to make sure that it's you know on the up and up. But on top of that, having an election remotely to a degree that's never been seen before. So uh, what, what are your thoughts on this report? Well, I mean, when in the link is in the show notes, but when you, when you look, I, I can't even get past the first paragraph without almost going into a rage because, you know, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which is part of our Department of Homeland Security, has a mis, dis, and malinformation team. And they were dispatched and they coordinated with um, the old regime, the old fascist uh, commie regime over at Twitter to deplatform or even just take down posts or you know, take people's accounts away for saying, for, for saying what is logical and commonsensical, which is that you can't just mail everybody dead or alive, whoever voted in the last, you know, four or five presidential elections, and then have no system in which you can uh, competently and securely collect all of those votes and have this be, quote unquote, the most secure election in American history. It might have been that very same agency that, that um, was determined to communicate that this was the most secure election in American history. The gaslighting by our own government which we pay taxes to support 
which is supposed to serve the public interest, but instead serves the purposes of the ruling class and the regime, as long as that regime is, is, um, uh, not, is, is not um, run by a president named Donald Trump. Then, then actually they, they turn against that guy. But it is absolutely infuriating that what you know in your heart is true is finally proven later that these agencies are lying to us, are gaslighting us. And it's what makes me so mad is like, is as Chris mentioned, it's like, you know, oh, you know, you know, this is a cover your ass report. This is so that they can say, no, 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 you know, we, we did correct the record, but nobody is going to pay attention to that. And it only comes out because of a lawsuit by the America First Legal Foundation. Other than that, um, we would still be being gaslit about the quote unquote most secure election in American history. And I, any agency that has a mal, miss, and disinformation team should be disbanded immediately. It is not the job of the government to tell us what information is correct and what information isn't. There are societies and governments that do that. And those are totalitarian and communist governments. This is ridiculous that this is happening in the United States. And it's just so normalized that it seems like very few people except for us and the, and the people who listen to um, this podcast and others like it are the only ones who care. Yeah, it's just unbelievable that, uh, you know, it's just like, oh, yeah, should we should we like make sure that this is secure? It's like, how dare you even question the legitimacy of this election? So, whoa, whoa, you know, I, I've got no agenda here. I'm just thinking, like, maybe we should make sure it's secure off to the gulags with you. <laughs> like, It just seems so ridiculous. But see, seeing like these concerns coming out of a government agency is uh, kind of interesting to me. Um, Justin, we do have a report that's coming out and. uh soon maybe a couple of weeks i don't know we'll see uh that ties directly into the poll results uh, an analysis you might say uh, i won't uh i won't spoil anything for our viewers but i'm pretty sure the report's gonna blow minds uh do you do you have anything to say about uh this upcoming report that we've got going or or maybe this the story that we've been talking about uh so the report that's that's going to be published soon, um, I think a lot of people who are on, who, who've been watching the show, ha heard about the poll that the Heartland Institute uh, produced with Rasmussen Reports back in, it was, it was actually conducted at the very end of November into December, but it was published mid-December that showed pretty clearly and, and, and shockingly that about one in five at minimum, one in five mail-in ballots involved some degree of, of fraud, voter fraud. Um, that was a very conservative estimate. We made that very clear at the time. We have since been able to get access to the entire set of data produced uh, that by that by that survey that Rasmussen Reports had. We've gone through the, the survey itself and we now have a new number and it is higher than one in five <laughs> mail-in ballots. And so uh, when the report comes out, people will be able to see that. But not only will they be able to see what uh, the, the new numbers and, and what those numbers um, uh, mean for mail-in balloting, as well as some policy recommendations for lawmakers to fix this problem going forward in the future, but they'll also be able to see, very importantly, how that level of fraud likely impacted the key swing states in the election. We were able to find election data, mail-in ballot data, and in some states it's better than others, which is pretty surprising in and of itself and, and problematic in and of itself. But we were able to find the election data that's publicly available, the best data we could find, and we were able to apply the results of our survey to that data to show people what the 
results of the election would have been had those mail-in ballots that we believe were likely fraudulent based on these survey results been excluded from the race. And uh, it is it is mind-blowing. I mean, it's absolutely mind-blowing. I'm sure we're going to talk about it when the, when the survey comes up, so I won't give away too much of it. Um, in relation to the um, story that you had been talking about previously, this new report from CISA, uh, I'm going to read to you uh, what, G what Jim was alluding to earlier. Um, this comes from, this is a joint statement issued uh, by, uh, this is hosted on CISA's website, CISA.gov. This was released on November 12th, 2020. Okay, the election was on November 3rd, 2020. So this is nine days after the election. They put out this statement. The November 3rd election was the most secure in American history, period. Nine days later, they said this, without any investigation, obviously. Right now, across the country, election officials are reviewing and double-checking the entire election process prior to finalizing the result. Well, then how do you know? that it's the most secure election if they haven't finished doing that. That would be my first question. <laughs> then it says, when states have close elections, many will recount ballots. All of the states with close results in the 2020 presidential election, blah, 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 blah. This process allows for identification and correction of any mistakes or errors. Then they bolded this statement. The only statement bolded. There is no evidence that any voting system deleted or lost votes, changed votes, or was in any way compromised. And then it goes on to talk about how there's unfounded claims of misinformation that's going spreading around and how that can affect the process of the of the elections. And um, that that uh, when you have questions, you should turn. This is a direct quote. When you have questions, turn to elections officials as trusted voices as they administer elections as if no one other than the people who administer the elections can determine whether the people administering the elections might be doing something wrong, which is a completely ridiculous authoritarian way of looking at the world. But, but one thing that I wanted to kind of highlight in this, because I think it's important actually, is that note that their way of framing that this was the most secure election, because this phrase has been used everywhere since then to prove there was no election fraud. A, fra a phrase that comes from a, a document that was produced nine days after the election when they weren't even finished counting and recounting ballots everywhere. That, that, that the thing that they highlighted was that there was no evidence that any voting system deleted or lost votes, changed votes, or was in any way compromised. Well, if you read that literally, all that's applying to is a voting system presumably an electronic one or something like that, that changes the votes or the change or deletes votes or something like that loses votes, something like that. Well, that has nothing to do with other forms of voter fraud. That's not that that has nothing to do with whether some guy broke into a ballot box somewhere and stole a bunch of ballots or somebody stuffed 10 ballots into a ballot box, for example, uh, and, and, fraudulently signed people's names or something like that. That has nothing to do with that. That has nothing to do with the kind of voter fraud that we believe that we found through our surveys. Uh, so I don't even know if you can necessarily blame the, the way they framed it was, was extremely problematic. Mm -hmm. If they had framed it like uh, the way they talked about the second part of it, and they hadn't made such a sweeping generalization at the very beginning 
then it wouldn't have been quite as as bad. But, you know, at that point in time, there probably wasn't any evidence that systems were deleting votes as if that was what everyone was talking about. Sure. And so I think some of this was people just taking that out of context and then running with it because it proved a, a different uh, you know, their larger narrative about what they wanted to say about the election. Um, but the idea that this was the most, the idea that you could even come to the conclusion that that was the most secure election in American history within less than 10 days of the election happening while they're still counting ballots is completely ludicrous. You well, can't, it, it, you can't do that. That was the only type of message that was able to get through kind of the media uh, uh, gatekeepers or whatever, whether it's the corporate media or whether it's social media or anything like that. Anything other than this is the most free and fair election was stopped, censored, uh, de-emphasized, whatever words that you want to do it. And our poll, like Jim pointed out in the first week that we talked about this, just kind of broke open those doors and gave people the uh, ability, the justification to question this sort of stuff again. So, yeah, but just real quick, I need to remind that they did the same thing before the election as well. When you had 50 something uh, national security, high level people sign a letter saying that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation, but they didn't (laughs) even look at it. So that's so when when they do stuff like that before the election, that makes me um just the ulterior motives when they when like justin said when they they uh point out that oh it doesn't look like any voting machines were like tampered with but that's not what we were saying we were saying hey wait a second did mail did the mass mail-in balloting uh you know result in ballots being counted that should have been counted they they just they you know don't address that and then they address the kind of weird conspiracy theory thing and say well that didn't happen Mm mm-hmm yeah. The, the reason it triggers me so much is that the the way the government, I mean, the government's lying to you, right? We knew that. Um, and former government officials in the intelligence community lying about the Hunter Biden laptop. It's it's not just that, see, a, a government that did not have utter contempt for, for the people of America would put out a statement that, that said, look, there's no evidence of any of any election malfeasance. Um, we have not been able to. Um, dis- we've been watching closely. We haven't tracked anything that would that would uh, raise questions about the integrity of the election. No, they have to come out and say, as an it's an insult to your intelligence and a complete disrespect to the American people, to say, as Justin pointed out, when there is absolutely no way you could know this, that it's the most secure election in American history. That is so insulting, and it just shows the contempt that the ruling class has for 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 America and for Americans. It absolutely triggers me. I can't, I, I almost can't take it. I was having a heart attack because there isn't anybody in any of these agencies when that statement is written that, you know, if some intern didn't just type that up and put it on the website, guys, that, that, that statement, because it's from a very important um, federal office, that, that a lot of eyes saw that and not one person was able to convince anybody or maybe even said, guys, that's pushing it a little far. That's like Soviet stuff here, you know, telling you that, um, you're not hungry. You're just uh, looking thin. You know, yeah, that, that's not a long line for bread. Um, you know, that's the usual line for bread. I mean, it, it's the it's the lie. It's not just the lying. The lying is to be expected. It's the absolute insult to our intelligence. And now one person in that agency said, guys, let's just take that line out. We don't really need it. That's kind of insulting. I think we should just say what we know, which is that, you know, again, I think would be a lie. But there's there's been no evidence that we would consider credible that there's anything wrong with the election at all. We can't go around saying this is the most secure election in American history. That's absurd. Now, one person said that. It just drives me absolutely nuts. 
Well, yeah. pre- prepare for uh, gasoline to be poured on this uh, fire of this conversation in the next couple of weeks when we when we release our report because I think it's going to get some media attention. But we should get to our main topic. Uh, so speaking of polls, the Committee to Unleash Prosperity did a polling analysis of its own. In this case, however, their focus was on comparing the world's view of those they identified as representing the 1% of America and the worldviews held by your average everyday Americans. So let's let's take a look at this, shall we? First, let's define our terms elites. According to this study, elite is defined as having at least one postgraduate degree, $150,000 or more annual income, living in a high-density urban residence, and being an Ivy Leaguer. The poll was conducted on a 1,000 people that fits this criteria to gauge their thinking on issues and some other matters. Then they compared the results of this poll to a poll of a thousand randomly selected people. So here are the results. So hold on, just oh, just real, just real quick. Was it was it and you said it like it was and like they're all like everyone has to meet all of those criteria? Or are you saying that? Yeah, you I, think only have all, to meet I think it's one all of them. them. No, no, no. I think it's all of those criteria. So every person polled was an Ivy League person. I, unless I'm misreading that criteria part, but it's at least those first three aspects of it. Yes, for sure. Okay. Okay. Um, so that that's what they defined as the 1% of America. Anyways, so they uh, we've got here just a, a selection of the questions comparing your average Americans to the elites. So the first question is, are your personal finances getting better or worse these days? The average voter said 20, 20% of the average voter said better. said worse, and 40% said same or not sure. Compared to the elites, uh, that 74% said better, and 16% say, I don't know, my accountant takes care of that stuff. (laughs) So that's a a pretty stark difference. Uh, That's a pretty stark difference right there. Note Note that none are worse. Yeah, none. None are worse. That's correct. Yeah, let, let me. Let me <laughs> Very just, late let me, on the drums there. Like, yeah. Go ahead, Joe. Just let me clarify. So, uh, looking at uh, what another thing I showed this is a is a column by um, uh, from the Wall Street Journal from uh, Kim Strassel, and it says Mr. Rasmussen says that for more than a year he'd been intrigued by the consistent outlier data from a subset of Americans, which he later defined as those with a postgraduate degree, those earning more than one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, and those living in a high density area. Um, and I believe the poll actually showed, and then, so that's, that's the people he's talking about. Those are the, the, the so-called elite, the, the urban elite. And then inside of that, people who have, who went to the Ivy league are even more out of touch with the rest. Ah, got it. That yep. makes sense to me. Okay. That makes so more those sense. First three, the Ivy league is a kind of a separate category. It would be really hard to pull that group like, uh, like Ivy league, but then also you have to meet all these other characteristics. So sure. yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah. That's, I guess why they have three of these, uh, pie charts. Yeah, um, right. All right, second, second question. Does the United States provide this? This one might be the most headline grabbing of the questions. Does the United States provide too much individual freedom, too much government control, or is the balance about right? So the average voters, 57%, so over half, said too much government control. 27%, just over a quarter, said the, uh, the mix is about right. And 16% said that there's too much freedom. Okay. Of the elites, though, 21%, less than a quarter, said uh, basically one in five, said too much government control, whereas 47%, nearly half, 
said that there's too much freedom in this country. And surely a question with too much freedom as your I answer. Know, right. And surely they mean too much freedom for other people. You know, they can't imagine that they have too much freedom, right? It's gotta be for other people. So uh so just reactions, uh uh Jim, to these first two questions. What are your thoughts? Well, <laughs> what I, I really feel, you know, so there are ruling class. I mean, if you look at the categories, you know, the elite 1%, you know, I don't know if $150,000 a year is 1%. Maybe it is. I don't know. Well, uh, I, don't think that's, remote, I don't think that's not even remotely close. Oh, yeah. I, don't I, don't think think yeah. I don't think that's allowing you to live in a high density urban center, at least not with like a couple of roommates or something like that. But, uh, but yeah, so go ahead. Yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, just with the freedom, I mean, just the idea that if, if you go, if you went to Harvard or Penn or Brown or, uh, you know, Cornell or any of those Ivy League schools, you know, a large majority of the people who went to those elite institutions think you and me have too much freedom. What is going on? This is the United States of America. The idea that this, that, that you would get something remotely like that, even among the elite in this country, say in 1990, or maybe even in the year 2000, to have a strong majority of Ivy League graduates think that we have too much freedom in this country? That, I, you know, I've talked about it on the podcast in the past, and I try not to get too pessimistic, but sometimes I think, you know, we're here trying to save America. The Heartland Institute, we're a free market think tank. We're trying to fight for liberty, individual liberty, and free market capitalism, and all the things, frankly, that have made America great. And sometimes when I see polls like this, I, I just wonder, you know, how much work needs to be done to get us back? Because again, I don't think you would get remotely these sorts of results in say the late eighties or even the mid nineties from even our, the most elite Americans, uh, the most elite Americans. It, it would be just, it's unfathomable that somebody who was raised, maybe somebody older than the age of 40 today would, would think this way. Yet there it is. The, the idea that uh, uh, basically the idea of America is not very appealing to our elites. That's mm. kind of scary. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Justin, I, I could just imagine, you know, some uh, some some person classified as the elite in this in this poll sitting down and looking at it like, oh, too much freedom. Yeah, well, I mean, it seems like you could just go to a gun store and just buy up all of the guns in the entire store and shoot up the place. Like, that's that's too much freedom, so I'm putting yes, too much freedom. Like, that's the caricature that they're, like, operating off of when they're answering poll questions like this. What do you think? Yeah, I think probably that's that's part of it. Yeah, I, I, think, I think there is a sense in which... You know, you when you spend time when you spend time with people who are like highly educated people. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Wait, wait. For context, for context, everybody, uh, Justin gets to go to all these highfalutin soirees and all of that where he's clinking martini glasses with people. Not because of anything Justin's doing, just because of the person no. that Justin's married to. But uh, yeah, married. So, I've married. So Justin's I've been around these elites pretty and pretty. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, by. By the definition of elite that they have here, I, I I'm no longer an elite because I don't live in a high density urban area, but I would have been considered an elite for several well, that's years. Household so, income, by the way. So that, I think that's just individual income when they're when they're talking about that criteria. So I don't think you're in that category either, but go ahead. I won't get into that. But the point <laughs> the point is this. I think that uh I think that um there is a strong sense uh, well i don't 
think it. This is what I've experienced. There's a strong sense amongst many people who are highly educated Ivy League types. And like I said, I've spent a lot of time around these people. We talk about especially healthcare things. Policy would come up all the time because it would be sort of like, what do you do for a living? It's like, oh, I work, you know, in public policy. And they're like, oh, and immediately they want to start talking about like single payer healthcare or something. Of course. And there is a very strong sense of like regular people don't know what they're doing. And, and, you know, you have to come up with policies and you have to come up with rules and you can't just allow people to, to, you know, do what they think is right because they don't know what they're doing. And there is a very strong sense of this and it's, and it's partially, um, and I think a lot of it is, is just the education is that like you have this very paternalistic sort of idea built into um, higher education where it's like, you guys are the ones response. You're the leaders, the future leaders of America. And, and it's your job to discover the right answers and you're smarter than everybody else. You know that. And so it's up to you to come up with the solutions that the other people are basically too dumb to come up with. You know, I've said this all that I've, I've, I've probably brought this story up before, but there was literally one time where I was talking to somebody like this uh, who had a background, I don't think it was an Ivy League background. They were at Duke, which is kind of like an Ivy League school in a way. Um, and they uh, they literally referred to people as sheep, that regular <laughs> people are like sheep, and that you kind of have to lead them in the right direction. And I've used this, <laughs> Alice, I've used that example probably a hundred times because they you know, probably didn't know who they were talking to. I've yeah. used that example a hundred times because because I really do feel like it, it, it was very much in the sense of, well, why can't people just make their own decisions? And why can't people just, you know, if they had more price transparency in healthcare, for example, they had more options for insurance companies, they had more flexibility with health savings accounts, they could do more things and shop around and that would bring prices down because we're introducing market forces into the healthcare marketplace and all of this stuff that we talk about all the time at Heartland for years and years and years. And the response to it was like, eh, yeah, but people don't know what they're doing. So obviously we have to come up with a top-down system that sort of tells them what to do because they don't know what to do. And fundamentally, I think that's the issue. Like if you actually believed that the average person is too stupid to manage their own affairs, then why wouldn't you want someone else to manage that person? Like, wouldn't you want that? I mean, doesn't that kind of make sense? Now, you might say, well, no, I would never support that, even if I thought everyone was stupid, because they have this God-given like individual right thing, right? And we can't infringe upon that, except none of these people believe that either. Uh -huh. So you're talking to a group of people that don't believe in the concept of like objective individual rights, and they don't believe that these people are smart enough to manage their own affairs. So if you just take those two ideas and you embed them into enough people, you're going to have a whole class of elites that say, yeah, well, why, why are we letting them buy guns? They're too stupid to make decisions about healthcare, but we're letting them sh have guns. Like that doesn't <laughs> right. seem very smart. Like it just all flows from that one thing. And if, and if you could trace all this back, I think to where this all went wrong, I, I really think it was sort of the takeover of, of higher education in particular. I wouldn't even put the K through 12 stuff in this part of the conversation, but higher education in particular, where these are the people that go off into the world, they get college degrees, they go off into the world. And on average, most of the people in charge of most institutions in America have college degrees. So most of those people have been through this system. 
and that system is full of people teaching the same general idea of this low view of regular people as these backwoods you know people that cling to their guns and religion and they don't as Barack Obama once famously said and don't really know any better and so if all of the people who are at an influential level because we allowed you know, conservatives allowed their institutions, their higher education to be taken over by these, this kind of mindset. If we allow a whole class of people to think that way, then once they come into power, obviously they're going to manage that way. And so it just, it just makes perfect sense when you look back on it and shame on Republicans and shame on conservatives, but especially, especially Republican politicians themselves who watched and, and in many places still continue to watch as their higher education institutions, and I'm talking about the public ones, I know they can't do anything about the private ones, but they watched as all those institutions were taken over by far left-wing people who don't share any of the values of the people of that state. And they watched them take over those institutions, which are funded in part at least, and founded in whole by the state government. And even though all the voters in that, most of the voters in those states don't like what's being taught at the colleges, they all just let it happen anyway. And now you end up with the results of that happening for decades after decade after decade after decade. And it's not a surprise that we now have a class of elite people that have no respect for regular people. It's because of that, mm -hmm. the system that has been built and we allowed it to happen. And now good luck trying to reverse course on it. It's extremely difficult to do at this point. And it will probably take decades to scale it back. Yeah, there, so the, the rest of the poll, or at least the vast majority of the rest of the questions that I see here are climate-related. Well, but before I, I get into those, Chris, any yeah, uh, yeah, any yeah. thoughts about these first couple? Yeah, so I think you know Jim and Justin covered uh, most of this, but I would just add this. I think that uh, in, in our modern society, uh, the elites live in these bubbles, and they don't interact with you know the quote-unquote regular folk like they used to. And I don't think this was even the case when I was growing up, because when I was growing up, I've I think that there was much more of, uh, you know, shared values across, uh, you know, the economic spectrum and, and, and you know, across uh, class lines. But nowadays, I think that the elites live like it, like they live uh, in, in these, you know, completely sealed off, you know, uh, echo chambers where they just, you know, keep getting the same, you know, things said to them over and over again. And I'm not saying that that's the driver of what that makes them look down upon, you know, the average folk. I think that there's many reasons for that. And I think Justin hit upon most of them, which is the changes in the uh, higher education, you know, over the past couple decades. But uh, I think that this has gotten progressively worse uh, in my adulthood. Uh, I, I grew up in an elitist enclave of, you know, Northfield, Illinois, in the North Shore of Chicago with, you know, multimillionaires and went to a great school. It wasn't like this when I was there. However, I did go back a couple of years ago because I did some student teaching there and I could already see the shift. So I, you know, I, I think that this is a newfound phenomenon that we need to really get a grasp of. And I think that the 2016 election and the mantra of Trump of the working class, the forgotten people, you know, the Rust Belt, that he uh, that resonated with them. And that, you know, the Republican Party, if you want to make this a political thing, whether it was Mitt Romney or, uh, you know, John McCain and, you know, when he was uh, running against Obama, I don't think they really caught that. And I think that Donald Trump was very insightful because he understood that this dynamic is happening and that this is a dangerous dynamic. Because if you have a small percentage of people at the top who are saying, well, we know what's best for the, you know, the majority, the vast majority of, you know, average folk at the bottom 
well, that's ripe for, you know, revolution and for some really, you know, bad societal, uh, you know, chaos. So I would love to see this actually get reined in. And I'd love to see the elites actually having an awakening and say, whoa, you know, we were, you know, we were out of, out of touch there for a while, but we want to get back on board here. And I know that that might sound, you know, like I'm talking with, uh, you know, rose colored glasses here, but. Uh, I think that if that doesn't happen and we have this bifurcation of society in which the elites live in one strata, you know, one strata and the rest of the people live in another, that that is not um, uh, that's not doable over the long term. So we got to we, we yeah. need to really handle this. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's a better uh, precursor to like authoritarianism uh, than the concept of if I was in charge, you know, I could make everything better. And I'm not talking about people that want to be in charge so that they can loosen up the reins of all of that sort of stuff. I, I'm talking about the people that actually want to go in there and fine tune the policy because they think that if their hands are on the controls, everything would be great. But on the flip side of that, if the elites are saying that we're going to run everything and they're running everything into the ground, that can also lead to a you know possible dictatorship or some sort of you know strongman that comes in and says, "Well, I'm the voice of the people and I will like you know do that." And then that, that can lead to you know socialism. That can lead no to doubt. all sorts of like really nasty stuff. So we. Want to avoid that we don't want to have a, a society where it's the elites versus the regular folks you know we need to work together and cooperate because when the elites do well the, the you know regular folks should do well and vice versa so there's a whole bunch of questions about climate change here so to fight climate change would you favor or oppose strict rationing of gas meat and electricity <laughs> not editorializing these questions these are the questions that are on here average voters 63 percent say no thank you and 28 percent say yeah sure i'll go along with that whereas the elites that's that's troubling in itself that voters you know i guess it's not too shocking that's the bernie that's the bernie segment <laughs> that's true that's the bernie bros yeah the bernie bros uh the elites on the other hand 22 percent say no and a whopping staggering concerning 77 percent said yes i would favor strict rationing of gas meat and electricity wow. because again i don't think these people are answering this question like oh yeah i'll cut back on all of these things i think they're answering the question thinking all of these things won't apply to me they'll apply to those lowly average americans and all of that sort of thing wow. uh how much would you personally be willing to pay each year in terms of taxes and higher costs to reduce climate change? Average voters, 72% say less than $100, and 28% say $500 or more. The elites, 30% say less than $100, and 70% say $500 or more. So a complete That's inverse stupid, of the two. Yeah, that question's a little weird. Yeah. um let's go to let's go to the, this one all right to fight climate change would you favor banning the following so to fight climate change would you favor banning gas stoves only 25 percent of Amer uh, average americans said yes whereas 69 percent of the elite said yes would you be in favor of banning gas-powered cars to fight climate change? Average voters, 24% compared to the elites, 72%. 72%. Now, of course, you know, they're probably cruising around their Teslas and all of that stuff while they're answering this question. So that one doesn't surprise me too much. Uh, how about banning non-essential air travel? Average Americans, 22%. The elite. Much lower than some of the other questions so far. 55%. Don't interfere with their vacations to the Bahamas. Come on, people. Those are essential, I think. 
Um, how about banning SUVs? Average American, 16% in favor of that. Elites, 58%. And private air conditioning, which I also thought was kind of a weird one to ask. Average Americans, 13%. Uh, say they would be in favor of banning that to fight climate change. And the elites, 53%. I don't know any of these people. That's in life. That, that last one is That's really shocking because if that really is what they've if 68% of, you know, Ivy League graduates and almost, you know, more than 50% of the elites want to ban private air conditioning in places like Texas and Arizona and, you know, Southern California, where it gets, you know, hot in the summer, they, or do they want these people to, you know, to die of heat stroke? Like, I mean, this, that, that, that is. Justin, you're shaking your head. What, what, what do you. Well, it's you... not, there's no way. There's no, there's no way. That that's what I'm saying. I, I'm that. taking these at face value. Uh, me too, yeah. but like I seriously don't know any of these people. They don't believe like, that one though. They might see. I could see. I could see them saying, "Yeah, bare gasoline cars," like because they don't care because they can afford a, an electric car anyway. So what difference does it make? It's just twenty dollars more in their monthly payment or whatever f- yeah, when yeah, they're yeah. financing it. But when it comes to and gas stoves, maybe even that because whatever electric stoves are fine. But like uh, air conditioning, so there's because <laughs> that one actually affects them. Like they're gonna live in like. But Southern these don't California, apply to them. Like that, with no, yeah, it right, would apply right. to them, right? Just, Isn't that no, the whole because point? in their minds, you know that they're justifying it by saying, well, I'm special. I have lots of money. So the rules don't apply to me, but they apply to, you know, the. I don't know. This is I, banned on private air conditioning. <laughs> like, no but way. I think they, they, I think that they know that the rules don't apply to them it's just you know it, it, it it's the way it's been going for so many years now where they they pass laws but then they make sure that they have you know carve outs and that they don't have to apply to them so i i assume that this is them thinking well most people you know they can get away you could uh, buy with a couple of fans and some stuff and you know they don't really need air conditioning but me and my giant they, they mansion, know a guy of I do. they know a guy that can get them an air conditioning unit uh on the black market that's why they I want mean, to keep the borders open, probably and get those gym. black market Mexican air conditioners. What what is? But before before you go to gym, though, what is the? Did they ask about climate change? Did they ask about like what their opinion was on climate change or anything like that? Because um, I, I would love. Uh, okay, they didn't see. So yeah, see, I would love to know if because if you sign up for the climate change is going to kill everybody, and you and you ask that question earlier on in the poll, let's say for example, and they may not have done that in this then it almost forces you to say yes to anything that comes after it if you're, um, you know, taking that approach, right? Because you're going to say, we're all going to die from climate change. And then you're going to be like, but I'm not giving up my air conditioning. Like you kind of, <laughs> you kind of have to. Yeah. And I'd be willing to bet that a lot of regular people were like, I don't think we're going to die from climate change. But a, but some of the, but a large percentage of the elites, you know, think that. But so, it doesn't even say to solve or like to prevent climate change or anything. It says to fight. What does it, it say? It says to fight that's, climate that's change. That's just that to me. That's the most shocking one. That is the most shocking one. I mean, no air conditioning. Get out of here, Jim. In all of these questions that we've talked about so far, the elites have picked the troubling answer. Uh, at a ratio two to three times higher than that of the average Americans. I mean, that is quite a divide. And I am curious to, to kind of Chris's point, if you were to do this same survey year to year, just over the span of decades, whether or not that divide has gotten bigger or smaller or stayed relatively the same. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I mean, first of all, I think um, I'd have to go back and look at it, but I think they did ask one of the questions they asked was how much would you pay to prevent climate change or whatever? So all of these, all of these elites are completely indoctrinated 
in the climate cult. I mean, these are all cultists, um, obviously. Um, and I think that the elite said they would pay 250 bucks or maybe even more a year. It was 500. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, the average voter, the average American, um, in this poll said they wouldn't pay more than a hundred. And I think in other polling that we've uh, highlighted on this show quite a bit, um, most Americans wouldn't pay $10 (laughs) to stop climate change. Uh, but you know, I want to kind of look at this in another way. I mean, banning gas stoves, banning gas powered cars, um, banning non-essential air travel, banning SUVs and banning private air conditioning. In a functioning free society, even the regular voters, the, the, the answer to that should be zero. There is no justification for banning gas stoves. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt, harm the environment. Gas-powered cars, you know, uh, there's pollution controls. So people have been indoctrinated. But the answer shouldn't be, the answer should be zero. There, there's no justification. Ban this, ban that, ban the other thing. You know, I don't need it, so nobody else should have it. This attitude um, is obviously ripe among the elite or I have it and I don't want anybody else to have it, or I get to define what essential air travel is. Obviously going to Davos on my private jet is essential, <laughs> essential air travel. So uh, that'll be included, but you know, you, you needing to fly uh, to go to a funeral. Mm, yeah. I don't know if that's really essential. You should probably drive and get there uh, in two days instead Skype. of one Skype in. Yeah. Just Skype in for the funeral or whatever, but you know, but, but the answers to these questions should be zero, you know, but we live in such a, a society Obviously, the elites, I got bad news for everybody. You know, those elites and especially the Ivy League elites, like it or not, they run everything. You know, I, you know, it's, it's, you may not know who these people are, but the CEOs of all of our large corporations all go, are all these super elite people. Everybody that's in Davos is among the super elite Ivy League people. And they are the people in charge of our government, of our corporations, of our society, um, of, of positions in government everywhere. And they are completely out of touch with us, obviously. And this poll really shows it. But people also know this in their guts because they do treat us, as, as, uh, as Justin said, like sheep. They really do consider you and me, ordinary Americans, um, they, they, they were born to rule over us because they are so much smarter and wiser. They really have this, this mentality in their head. It's sick. I- it really is sick. I would go one step further. I'd say they don't they don't view, you know, average working uh, class people as sheep. I think they view them as, uh, you know, like 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 pains that just need to be like done away with. And I think that some of this is about conditioning them because I think that they're playing the long term game here. And if you can get people to say, fine, I'll do without a gas stove. It's kind of sucks. But 10 years from now, they you know, I think that that will pay dividends for them, because then if they really do say, OK, it's time to, you know, no more air conditioning, it's. You know, you've 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 done without your gas stove. You've you've gotten rid of your SUV. This is the next thing in in line. I think that people would be would be more willing to submit to that, which is why I think it's important that we kind of lay down a line in the sand now and say no, like you know, because Donnie, just this week, uh, Brandon Johnson, the mayor of Chicago, uh, um, signed off on a city ordinance that's going to ban gas stove hookups in new construction in the city of Chicago. Like yeah. once that goes into play, that you know that's gonna that's gonna have you know major consequences. We need yeah. to do our best to stop these things from even you know being you know put on the plate here, because once they're there and once they are uh, accepted by society, I think that you're just gonna keep going further and further and further down that road. Yeah, right now, right now it's uh, you know we need a transition to renewable energy, hundred percent by you know twenty thirty or twenty fifty or something like that. After that's achieved, it won't be. Once that's achieved, then we're going to switch over to air conditioning and we're going to 
transform everything, transition everything to palm leaves uh, by 2050. I think that's the next plan. So, the... so, so I... <laughs> that's the slippery slope. So, I mean, I, I actually, I, I mean, I really do think that there's a a really good argument to be made that what what Chris said is is that's like the most important thing out of all of this is if if you if you can stop elites from taking away people's gas powered stoves then really they can't do anything worse than the gas powered stove like they have to do that first right it's because if they can't jump to something else like they have to they have to start with the things that are people are maybe more amenable to giving up and then you kind of work your way from there to the really crazy things that they start doing to people right and so fighting every single one of these battles is actually like probably the best strategy that you can have to slowing everything down because if they can't take the gas powered stove then they're not going to be able to go the next step right they probably can't even take your car but one thing that i i do want to uh point out is earlier jim said there's no justification for it but the justification is everyone's going to die so it's like that that is that is a valid justification isn't it like if there was a product that was spewing spewing like say poisonous gas into the air and we were all ingesting the poisonous gas and in five years we were all going to die from the poisonous gas and we knew that this was true we all or we all believed this was true then surely no one would say, well, you have the freedom, you know, you're free. So you get to keep pumping the poisonous gas in the air. Like it doesn't matter if everyone's going to die in five years. Like obviously nobody would take that position. So that's how they approach it. They approach it like carbon, like any kind of CO2, CO2 emissions are basically like poisonous gas going into the air. It's going to kill everybody. And so anything can be justified with that logic and, I, and that's really the root of the whole of the whole thing. So I guess the question that I have is, do you think the elites actually believe? See, I think that the 23 percent or whatever who are going along with this, who are regular people, they probably really do believe that because why else would they go along with it? <laughs> There's no other reason for them to go along with it. Elites, on the other hand, they have a they they might have a reason to say we should do these things. I want to control society and whatever. But uh, they maybe don't believe that that's really the root cause of everything, right? There's something in it for them. There isn't something in it for the regular people. But I really do wonder because of how pervasive this idea is in in higher education generally that we're all going to die from climate change. How many of these elites really do look at this and say, well, yeah, like I really do believe we're all going to die. Therefore, we really do have to stop everyone from doing these things or else what's the point of freedom we're all going to be dead well and i think that's no. a fair perspective if you believe the underlying assumption right and that's kind of the kind of the point that's right, why it's the a skeleton key to all of this stuff but justin Jim. if they really did believe oh, that no jim Chris, just real quick no no but justin if they really did believe that don't you think that they would be taking uh the necessary steps to really avoid all travel like their carbon footprint is so much bigger than the average american so that's where it's like if they're not practicing what they preach i can't really take them seriously sorry Jim. well they well they're the ones driving the electric cars right and they're the ones who are are you know like like to some extent i no i told me i totally agree with you they're not doing the things that they would theoretically have to do right 
Um, but that's kind of like when the socialists say, well, you know, uh, we should have, uh, everyone should pay their fair share and then they're not giving away money to the government on their own. They're waiting for the taxes. Like, I agree that that's hypocritical, but that's, that's how, I mean, that's, that's what everybody does in every situation, right? I mean, it's, it's not common for, I, I think that when you believe, when you live in a universe where you say the government really should be imposing these things, then I think it, it's almost, it's understandable that they would say, well, I'm going to, you know, push for the government to impose it. And then we all live by the same rules. Like, I think that that's the logic of, of how that works. Now, I guess it's a little bit different if you think everyone's going to die because, because to use the poison air example, if you really do believe that your gas stove is, is poisoning the air in the neighborhood and that neighbors will die from your gas stove then yeah i mean you should probably turn off your gas stove then if you really believe that so right. it is a bizarre it is a bizarre thing but people people you know do hypocritical things all the time right so it doesn't necessarily mean they don't really believe it so i i, I don't know i mean i just have never i've talked to enough of these people to th to, to really, do, I don't know why they would be lying to me in my own personal life. Like, why would they say they think we're all going to die from climate change if they don't really believe it? I have to believe that a lot of these people actually do believe we're all going to die. I'm not talking about John Kerry, you know, just regular people. You know, there we in human history that there, there have been societies in which the ruling class believed that unless we threw a virgin into a volcano, we will Correct. all starve and we will all die. That's right. That didn't make them right just because they believed it. And in this case, uh, the elites are not right. It is not destroying the planet to live life as we are now. Um, so I, I refuse. I am going to resist being uh, having my life affected by the delusions of a brainwashed climate cultist elite. I'm going to do my best to not have to live that way. But it would, as to Chris's point, and we'll get on to Davos watch here, I guess. But to Chris's point, um, I'll believe them a little bit more if they decide and make a big show of giving up and maybe even smashing it with a sledgehammer, their $10,000 Viking gas stove that's in their um, 700 square foot chef's kitchen. <laughs> but they're not going to do that. They're going to keep their $10,000 gas Viking stove. And, and uh, you know, uh, how many, how many, $5,000 refrigerators did uh, Nancy Pelosi <laughs> kind of humble brag about on, uh, on one of those stupid videos she did. And so these people are not going to reduce their lifestyles at all. It's kind of like the idea in a, in when, when people are starving in the Soviet union, you know, the, uh, the apparatchiks and the, and the, uh, and the, the great Soviets, they all got to eat as much as they wanted. In fact, they were fat. And it was justified, well, we need to be healthy. We need to eat the meat. We need to be, because we have to run everything. And the elites in this country think exactly the same way. That's why they will never give these things up because it's justified. They need these things because they're the one, they're the ruling class. And if they fall, then the whole society falls. But they yeah. said that they would give it up too. The poll doesn't say, should other people give it up? You're assuming they're saying I'll give no, up. My I, I fully, I, know, I fully think that these people or at least a lot of them are answering it as if these rules won't necessarily apply to don't, them. Don't you and think, I feel it, like that was the problem with the poll though. The poll should have asked that. You they should have yeah. asked that specifically, sure, right? Because sure. that would have but answered it just, the question. It just reminds me of like the people that yell like "open borders" from inside their fancy house in a gated community in the nice mm -hmm. part of town. You know, it's like it's not going to affect them. 
or the people that promote electric car subsidies when they're the only ones that are going to be wealthy enough to buy them. And, you know, it's a nice supplement to their SUV or the people that yell ban guns while they walk around with their private security detail. It's like, you know, you could be for all of these things very easily in virtue signal on on Twitter and Facebook, social media and all of that when you know that it's not going to actually affect you. Or, so fly, I, or fly in private planes to Davos and, and you know, feast on the, exactly. the, the best meat in the world. And that's a try to trying to do a little segue here, Donnie. Yeah, well, that's that's a good point. Um, yeah, and what's what's funny, my, my segue was that, uh, you know, the elites, as they're defined in this study, aren't even the elites that we talk about when we generally talk about the elites, you know, the people that are going to Davos, I'm sure they're pulling in a little bit more than $150,000. Wow, the super <laughs> duper elites. But I could only imagine that if you were able to poll, you know, the thousand people that are over at Davos, you know, what those pie charts look like compared to these ones, you know, I, I suspect that the, the divide and kind of worldview is even greater than the ones that we're showing off in this. But, uh, but yeah, so that's uh, the, these these people, as Jim was mentioning, these elites, especially when you go up that scale, uh, they're the ones that are in power, positions of power, whether it's government, media, or other institutions where they have power over the population. And no other place is this more on display than at my favorite ski resort town that I haven't been to, Davos, Switzerland. So I think it's time for Davos Watch. Let's hit that bumper music if you have it ready. All right, welcome to episode 12 of Davos Watch, where we keep an eye on the global elites from Davos to the UN and all the other advocates of global fascism and totalitarian technocracy. This week, I want to talk about Davos. That is right, the big show. Davos 2024 wrapped up this past Friday. And uh, to put us in the Davos man mindset, uh, I have a video here prepared for you that I think will get you get your head in the right headspace to kind of absorb all of these potential machinations of the, the global elite. So let's go ahead and play this video. Set the mood. <laughs> This is my favorite part. <laughs> I love the look on their faces. Hey, what do you get away from me? I want to say gazoon tight after this. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. These guys <laughs> for, for all the audio only listeners uh what what is happening here is a uh someone representing some tribe of some indigenous people somewhere uh doing some sort of opening ceremony prayer type thing and uh walking nice. one by one to each of the panelists that are on stage for this davos panel and uh basically blowing in their faces one after the other and <laughs> you know I, I want to get my my goal in life is to get to a point where I'm influential enough where I could be at a conference like this and have a tribal woman spit in my face. I think that's a goal that we should all try to attain. 
Well, we, we went from uh, six feet of separation and everybody has to double mask to coughing in each other's faces uh, <laughs> at a Davos watch in record time, man. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No Pretty doubt. Good. Was this was this before or after the uh, evangelical Baptist minister got up there? And uh... <laughs> yeah, no, that's not allowed. That's not. Oh, allowed. that. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, sorry. That's not allowed. Yeah. I I didn't I didn't know that. It's just <laughs> so, it's what just whatever the hell this was. I guess is the only right. religion allowed at Davos. So okay. I want I want to spend so I want to spend the episode running through some of my main takeaways from the conference and and this video that we just played kind of ties into my first point. So there was an article published by National Review that started off uh, by highlighting this interaction at Davos. the The point of the article was basically to say that Davos is nothing but cringe wannabe central planners virtue signaling for a week while not actually wielding all that much power over the lives and decisions. Uh, made around the world. The article is titled Davos is Cringe. And while I agree with certain aspects of that article, I, I, I disagree with kind of their main point. So the article then quotes World Bank President Ajay Benga, who during one of his panels he was on started talking about how uh, how we must not even allow developing countries to use reliable energy, but instead allow them to grow with the use of wind and solar power. So Ajay Benga says, quote, I actually believe that if you open the taps on natural gas everywhere, then you won't be able to close it again. He says, I think the world has come to this conclusion and political leaders and everyone else that you cannot say that it's my turn. Let me grow with energy emissions, heavy growth. And first off, I feel like this is like a total change of position of the global elite types. Uh, usually, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Jim, but I always thought like in the, the the Paris Climate Treaty or different agreements like that, that developing countries were always kind of given a pass. You know, they'll say, yeah, don't worry about curbing your emissions until uh, 2030 or something like that. Like, isn't that the deal that China got? But now we've got the World Bank president on there saying like, nope, wind and solar or nothing. So I thought that was pretty crazy. But anyways, the article in National Review then goes on to point out that why why would developing countries agree to this so they can get invited to the next Davos? Nah, surely they'll continue to re, re, uh, use reliable energy. And this is where I disagree. Um, the World Bank slushes around a whole lot of money. They're funding projects uh, around the world to the tune of tens of billion dollars a year. And to get your hands on some of that money uh, in forms of grants or loans, you know, you bet some countries around the world are going to be clamoring to chase some of these green energy schemes. And the point of the president of the World Bank speaking at Davos is partially to increase their power and resources to make them even more influential. And, uh, you know, we we know from everything that we've covered over the past several years, a couple of years about the Great Reset, ESG that the World Economic Forum and the parties that meet at Davos wield enormous power and influence. So my first takeaway is that uh, some seem to like to dismiss Davos and just kind of ridicule the people there, which I think is fair. We just watched that video, ridicule away. But I think we should also take them very seriously in the plans that they put forward and the potential power that they that they wield. So that that's my first takeaway. Uh, the second bit... I'm just going to run through all of this and I'll open it up to your guys' uh, comments and all of that. My second takeaway, apparently climate change has taken a backseat to other matters. So another article that I had here, and if I can find it, Andy, I'll give it to you. But uh, it basically says that uh, this is from a New York Times. 
and it suggests that climate has taken a backseat uh, to other issues at Davos. And the author of the article is David Gellis. He moderated two of the panels at Davos. So he's the one that's making this claim. Uh, he talks about how Davos seemed to de-emphasize the topic of climate, quoting one activist complaining, quote, they're not talking about climate, about biodiversity, about the crisis at all. It's not acceptable. Gellis then writes about an interaction that he had with Andres Galuski, a chief executive of a major renewable energy company. Galuski apparently said, quote, I think there's a little bit of a sort of climate catastrophe. Uh, catastrophe fatigue human beings aren't well adapted to reacting to long-term changes galuski said our brains are basically the same as paleolithic hunters it's like throw spear run from tiger we're not good at thinking three years from now that my cave might collapse and i just thought you know what a what a, what a great way to describe the minds of of uh, of people they're just cave dwellers seemingly i think but i prefer being called sheep yeah, right. We're just downward sliding on the analogies here. Now, of course, there was plenty of climate talk. U.S. climate envoy John Kerry was out there in full force during three panels where he hit all the high notes when it came to uh, climate alarmism. You know, uh, dangerously close to a tipping point, zero emissions by 2050, business as usual is no longer an option. You know, all the greatest hits. John Kerry just outlining how much money is needed, trillions of dollars a year to fight climate change. And there was, uh, you know, 200 speeches and panels. So, of course, a handful of them were about climate. But, and this is my, my next takeaway, is that it was overshadowed. Climate definitely was overshadowed uh, by the topic of mis- and disinformation. This was the topic that definitely took center stage over the course of the week. Uh, this... This um, this kind of main topic mirrors the attention that they paid to this topic of mis and disinformation in the recently released Global Risks Report, where they put that as the top risk over the next couple of years. And they constantly discuss this in the context of three billion people or half the world's population is going to be voting in one election or another over the next 12 to 18 months. And they had panels dedicated to talking about Deep fakes and AI generated audio and their ability to alter elections and manipulate people. And we've discussed that on this podcast before. Ursula von der Leyen, president of the European Commission, uh, discussed these issues and how it relates to the upcoming elections and how it can throw elections if certain misinformation is spread and all of that. And she discussed the progress that she's made so far, that the European Union has made so far in these efforts. And then another interesting bit was a discussion between Klaus Schwab and Satya Nadella, who is the CEO of Microsoft, where Klaus Schwab asked whether or not he thinks uh, that uh, Nadella believes that there is a need for global regulations when it comes to artificial intelligence and some of these other matters, where Satya Nadella said, uh, yeah, I think that is something that we're going to need to do. And then Klaus Schwab responded, Saying like, yeah, I think uh, you know everyone seems to be on board with this, including China. They signaled their willingness to be a part of this global regulating regime when it comes to AI. So doesn't that just fill you all with such great uh, excitement and uh, you know just looking forward to what's coming down the road? Where 
you know, China is going to be helping craft the regulations for artificial intelligence. That should make you feel very optimistic about our future. And then speaking of China, and this is kind of my last takeaway before I open it up to all of you guys. Uh, China was seemingly using Davos this year to court Western elites and to a maybe equal degree vice versa. So China is usually welcomed to these sorts of international conferences with open arms, and this year was no different. But because of economic headwinds that China is facing, it seemed like China was playing a little nicer than usual. So there was one article that I was looking at, I think it was a CNBC article, and it was talking about how the the delegation, China's delegation to Davos was the largest that it's been in about seven years, 80 people representing China going to Davos this year. And uh, it, it all had this context of that China is not doing very well. Their stock market's starting to fall. People are pulling out major investments to the tunes of tens of billions of dollars. And then you have Chinese premier Li Zhuang. Don't know how to pronounce that, but so supposedly he's like second in command when it comes to the kind of the ruling powers in China. He had his own speech. It was a conversation with him and where his his main point was basically talking about how, yeah, we need to pursue cooperation with each other. And the idea that investing in China is an opportunity, not a risk. So you find a bunch of examples of people in multiple panels talking about how China's lead the way when it comes to climate change. And, you know, oh, yeah, they're great because they want to get on board with global regulations for AI. And it just seemed like China was really trying to play nice at this conference. And, and, and like I said, vice versa. So those were my main takeaways after sifting through as many of these panels as we could get through. Uh, Justin, your interview that you did with Ali Stuckey uh, today that you mentioned earlier was about was about this issue. Was there any other things that you wanted to add on to this or any other takeaways that I neglected to talk about? I think that one of the things that was uh, I, I think you did a good job uh, summarizing that. I think that one of the the things that has been missed by a lot of people is that there was a speech done by the head of the United Nations, uh, Antonio Guterres. And um, in the speech, he references all sorts of problems and issues and concerns like climate change and whatever, and suggests that, you know, the only way we can solve this is with greater collaboration among multilateral institutions and influential groups and blah, 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 blah. And that's all... Antonio Guterres speech for speak for uh, we need to give the UN more power. And that's not right. me assuming that, you know, sort of imposing that on him um, just prior to him getting up on the stage, the president of the world economic forum, a guy named Borge Brende um, talked about how excited everybody at the world economic forum was for their, for the United nations upcoming meeting of the heads of state. That's going to happen in September uh, an event called Summit for the Future, where they're going to, they've already decided, uh, have a pact for the future, which is going to be an internet, a new international agreement signed by heads of state that's going to include a whole slew of different uh, proposals for 
basically enhancing the power of the United Nations and other multilateral institutions, including things like a global misinformation, disinformation board governing standards on the internet, for example, an emergency platform for the United Nations that gives them power, the, the head of the United Nations, unprecedented levels of power in the event of a future uh, emergency, which he gets to declare himself and then continue to redeclare every time <laughs> the period of time runs up and on and on and on, a whole bunch of other things. He also and, gets the title uh, of Caesar when he does that. Yeah, and, Bo and Borge Brende, <laughs> when he introduces it, says we're really excited and we're we're totally behind this. Uh, our common agenda pack for the future thing that you got coming up. That's really exciting. And then the head of the United Nations gets up on the stage and talks about the importance of having to increase the power of the United Nations and multilateral institutions. And so, I mean, I understand you really got to like know what all this stuff is beforehand to decipher exactly what this means. But if you, if you knew about those things and you heard that you would say, Oh my gosh, like that's, that's bad. You know, I guess they're still going forward with that plan. And so although although the details of that are still being finalized um, by various country, uh, their delegations at the United Nations, including uh, the United States is involved in some of those talks. And the United States, by the way, has already said it's one of its ambassadors to the United Nations that they support our common agenda, including the emergency platform um, that that, you know, we don't have all the details yet. It could change before the agreement is signed. But that's what's coming our way. And that was, was they're all super psyched about that over at the World Economic Forum. And most people, I think, just kind of missed it because you got to know all this other stuff to know what that really is. But that's really a huge, huge thing. And the fact that that's still going on and the fact that, that the World Economic Forum is 100% behind it and the fact that the Biden administration has already committed to at least a fair amount of it, not good. Not, not a good sign whatsoever. This... This year is going to prove to be, for a variety of reasons, not just the election, but for a variety of reasons, this year, 2024, is going to prove to be one of truly a, a pivotal year in the future of freedom for Americans. A lot of very important things are happening this year, and some of that might get reversed if, if a new president comes in, but some of it might not. And of course, we don't know if Biden will win the election. So there's that as well. So all important stuff for people to pay attention mm -hmm. to going forward. Yeah, Chris, you uh, you kind of took the lead in, in watching some of these climate panels with John Kerry. I, I'm sure you got more John Kerry than anyone should ever deserve to get in a Please. lifetime. But uh, yeah. did you get the sense at all that climate was taking a back seat in this conference when you were watching those panels? Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because I was going to uh, say that I kind of disagree with uh, how you framed it. I don't think that the WEF is abandoning uh, the, the climate change agenda. This is what I think they're doing. I think that they are saying in order for us to implement it, we need to uh, control the narrative full stop. Mm -hmm. And what Amen. I mean by that is that uh, in the 21st century, it's great that we have, you know, the Internet and social media, which gives everyone a voice. And it means that information can spread rapidly and widely. And that's all great stuff. But what I think that these people say is, oh, man, that's a blessing and a curse because it allows yeah. people to just constantly um, uh, question and challenge our assertions. So what they're trying to do is say, gosh, you know, for once and for all, we just need to get a hand over this whole thing. And that's why I think they are hellbent on controlling the flow of information and speech on a worldwide level. 
And once again, it's more, it's in some ways it's more difficult, but in some ways it's easier with the advent of these new technologies. Cause back in, you know, Nazi Germany or, you know, Stalinist, you know, Soviet union, you could just control the press basically like that. Say, okay, all these newspapers, you're shut down these books, you know, we're going to burn them and that's it. It's a lot, mm. it's a lot more difficult to do nowadays in some ways, but it's also easier. So I think what they've said is, okay, we're not going to convince, we're not going to persuade people to go along with our agenda. We've been trying that for 40 something years and it's not working. It's time for plan B. Plan B is we're just going to, you know, force feed this down people's throats and we're just going to, you know, like Goebbels said, we're just going to bash them over the head with these lies and lies and lies until they either accept it or just submit to it. So that's what I think this is really about. I think that's yeah. their strategy going forward. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually think that report that we covered, was it last week with like the, the outlining old denial and new denial and, and all of that? Bingo. Yes. It's like, it's like a precursor, or at least kind of a, all this a, stuff, a, hate element. speech, all these yeah. new things from, geez, I'm telling you, Justin, Donnie, Jim, when we were kids hate speech was it, it wasn't a thing but yeah, it's like yeah. but it's just it just keeps creeping more and more <laughs> yeah just jim like, that's what, that's what, the walk-off music but you i, I haven't come to oh, you yet in davos watch what are your thoughts on all, any of this so far no i i think that's all 100 correct i mean that's why we're, we're fighting here um for freedom and liberty all the time and some of the most basic liberties we have and these are rights that we have that we're born with that we're not awarded by government and they're always trying to infringe on them. And the most important one is freedom of speech. And so that's what uh, we're fighting for here because, um, you know, again, our elites are not interested in governing a just free society. They're interested in ruling over us, ruling, you know, being a ruling class. That's why we call it that. Um, and freedom, our freedom makes that a lot harder, which is why they're always attacking. Yeah, I, I think, uh, or Justin, do you have any last last things to say? Uh, no, we don't have time for it. Okay. Uh, so there was obviously a lot in Davos. I covered uh, just just like the, the surface level of all these things. But in future episodes of Davos Watch, uh, I'm going to try to drill down into a little bit more and some of the details of some of these kind of larger takeaways and, and see if we could find, uh, you know, any fire below any of the smoke and all of that stuff. So stay tuned for future episodes of Davos Watch. And, you know, just a heads up of what's coming. I just looked at my calendar and we got the World Government Summit to look forward to in the middle of February. So surely nice. there'll be some interesting stuff to talk about there. So I love the WGS. That's my favorite <laughs> of all the right. World Government Summits. That's the best one. <laughs> That's the best one. It's always right. tyrant season, it seems. Got the best That's shrimp. Right. Got the best shrimp cocktail. Dude, World Economic Forum puts on like 15 conferences a year. So there's always going to be one. And we'll be talking about it here on Davos. Watch. But I want to thank you all for tuning in to this episode of the In the Tank podcast. Join our show every week for a new episode. Those audio-only listeners that are catching the show probably on a Friday or later, leave a review for us on iTunes. That'd be greatly appreciated. And you can also join us a day earlier at Thursdays at noon Central Time, where we are live streaming on Facebook and YouTube and X and Rumble. And you can join the conversation, throw your comments and questions in the chat. Maybe we'll show your comment on the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. Super chat functionality is enabled if you want to support the show that way or if you just want to spend a couple of seconds to support the show instead of a couple of dollars you can uh, just hit the like button share this content subscribe if you haven't already or just leave a comment under the video all these things help break through those big tech algorithms to prevent content like this from being shown to more people you could also follow us on x at in the tank pod or you can send us your questions comments or suggestions for the show by emailing us at in the tank podcast at gmail.com jim lakely where can the fine people find you 
at jlakely on x at heartland inst on x and always visit heartland.org fantastic justin haskins same question at justin t haskins on x and all the other social media platforms and go to heartland.org fantastic and chris talgo what do you have to pitch today well, Donnie, this is uh, National School Choice Week. So I just want to say, please, everybody, go and uh, celebrate National School Choice Week. And uh, school choice is one of the ways that we can solve all these problems, I think. That is a good way to end the show. Thank you all for tuning in, everybody. We'll talk to you next week.